Go ahead and grab a seat. I'm going to introduce myself here in a minute, but because the passage we're looking at is weird and small and tiny, I'm going to go ahead and tell you to turn to Habakkuk. Um, I think there's Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I think there's Bibles in the back if you want to grab those, or I lied. Either one happened, but I think we have them in the back that you can grab. Um, But trying to find Habakkuk, go to Matthew and then go back like eight pages. That's probably the best way to get there. Or the best way is to download version on your phone, and then it's like three clicks. So either way, that'll get you there quick. Um, I want to introduce myself. My name is Caleb Sutherland. I am actually, I have a weird title. My title is Disciple Making Catalyst. Um, do this in Dallas, Portland, and then kind of beginning to see it happen here. Uh, actually flew in from Portland just yesterday, had a layover in Dallas. It's weird having a layover three minutes from your home. Um, but came over here, uh, good friend of your pastor, Russell, um, love talking with them, love hanging out with them, love just dialoguing about what it takes to reach a city. This is what I love more than anything about your pastor is that he only has two things figured out. It's all about Jesus love your wife and family well, and then just lead and figure it out as you go. And I love that, that he's willing to try new and different things. He's willing to push and just see this church shape the city. And I love that about him. He's not going, we've got it figured out. Don't follow those guys. Those guys are freaky. Follow the guys that are pushing and challenging and trying to see life change. And that's what I love about your pastor and this church and its leaders. Um, we're going to jump into this book of Habakkuk because I'm kind of, I think, ending y'all's series on prayer. And when I was talking with Russell, he said, we're doing a series on prayer. It's city renewing, life transforming, money making, baby making, I, I, everything prayer. I can't really, there's four things that he kind of launched out there. This idea of prayer being so massive that it begins to change our city. It begins to change our life. It begins to change our church. And we begin to change the world. And I don't know about y'all, but a lot of times I don't think I feel that way about prayer or I don't really enjoy prayer. I just, it, it's a tag in. We got to do it. The meal comes. I don't know why we wait till the food's like just coming up in your face and you're hungry to go, now let's pray, but that's what we do. And it's like how we tag it in. So part of what this prayer is in Habakkuk is this need for me to see a different view, a different idea, a different concept of prayer. So one of the ideas in the wrestle, and this is why I almost always go to Habakkuk when I'm wrestling with prayer, is what happens when God feels distant or uncaring or disinterested in you? What happens when you're praying and you're pleading and God doesn't say anything? What happens when you're, you're wanting God to do something? God, restore my marriage. God, fix my health. God, help me find a job. And nothing. And the problem is usually Christians, when you hang out with them long enough, give you two beautiful, unhelpful answers. One of which is, well, one of the ways God tells you stuff is no. One of the greatest gifts God can give is unanswered prayers. You know, that's not doing anything for me now. Like that, except for wanting to punch you, that changed me nothing at all. The other thing is going, well, God gives three ways. He gives a yes, he gives a no, and he gives a later. 
But I know when I'm pleading for the health of somebody, for the restoration of somebody, for a job when I see my bank account, later is not the answer that I'm really, really wanting. Later is not changing my soul. Later doesn't seem to be changing my world. And so this is what I love about jumping into this book of Habakkuk is because he deals with this. And so I want us to look at this and we're going to kind of narratively go through this passage because the idea is prayers that seek to know the heart of God are prayers that are world-changing, city-transforming, neighborhood-restoring, and life-giving prayers. Let's start with two through four. We're going to kind of narratively go through this. Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look at what he's saying here. He's going, I'm, I'm pleading with you to make this world, to make our city, to make my family more like heaven and less like hell. And you're doing nothing. I mean, he's sitting there going, even the law, even their good things, even this whole concept that you gave to get, it's paralyzed, it's destroyed. Nothing that you're saying is effective right now. Why don't you listen? Now, am I the only one that's been there? God, why don't you make my marriage better? Why don't you make me not depressed anymore? Why every morning do I wake up like that? Why is my city just messed up? Why do my kids worry and go to school and fear if they're going to get beat up? Why? And you're pleading and God says nothing. God doesn't say anything to him. Why is God not listening? And if he is listening, and so the Christian jumps and goes, he's listening, then why is he indifferent? Why is he indifferent? One of the things I want to bring up here is the beauty of a guy who's willing to have this conversation with God. How how many of y'all have been there where you're willing just to stand up and go, why aren't you listening? Why do you not care? Why the thing that you created to be good, the law, why is it paralyzed and you don't do anything? One of the beauties of this life transforming, city renewing, this type of prayer is men and women who care deeply enough to actually plead for God. If, if we want to see your marriage restored, we want to see this city renewed, we want to see churches planted, we have to have men and women who care enough to have this kind of confrontation with God. To have this fight. I love this idea. There's a girl lady who went into the D.C. school district, one of the worst school districts in the entire nation, and began to go in, and her job was to completely transform the school district. And as she addressed the school district and looked at the school district, she decided, we need to close down like 24 schools in this year alone. So she had to go in, and you imagine every time you go into a school, you're shutting it down in the community, you're shutting down jobs, you're making people go further away. She had to do this along every one. And in an interview, somebody asked her, so 
uh, I saw some video of you going in and people were throwing things at you and yelling and had signs and picketing. How was that hard? Because people were yelling at you. And she said, not as hard as the schools that I went into and nobody said a thing because nobody cared. I'll take anger over apathy any day because anger shows you care. And some of us to see this pleading with God, we develop this immense deep relationship where we can have anger over what we see and what we're experiencing and what we're going through instead of apathy. And so to create this massively life-transforming prayer, we have to have people who care enough to plead and argue and have stern conversations with God. And then God answers. In 5 through 11, he begins to pull down this whole thing. So he says, look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Then he goes down and says, here's what I'm doing. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. They're going to come in and they're just going to take over. Basically going, I have a plan. I'm already doing it. If you look, I'm already at work. I'm already making it happen. You just got to look around. You got to check things out. And you got to see what all's happening in this. Paul uses this exact same quote in verse 5 in Acts. He says, look around. I am doing a work in your day. But what's fascinating is I'll encourage you to read this later. Habakkuk says, no, 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 no. That's the worst thing you could do. Why would that be your response? You're choosing to take the worst people to come in and destroy everything. This does not fit. Look in verse 12. In verse 12, Habakkuk begins to plead and say, this doesn't fit your character. Your answer isn't consistent with who you are. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He's questioning everything, going, this doesn't fit. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk's going, I pled with you that my world would change because of your beauty. And you responded and it fit nothing that matches you. It fit nothing that matches you. Your response seemed to be more like evil than good. Who's been there? Who's been there when you plead and, and God's answered and you're going, that, that didn't fit your heart, that didn't fit your nature, that didn't fit your rhythm, that didn't fit everything that you are and, and you're just in this constant fight, constant battle, constant tension with God. I love that Habakkuk, for one, here's one of the ideas. 
for him to actually confront God in his nature, he had to know who God was. He had to spend the time in in the word. He had to spend the time getting to know God. He had to spend the time really knowing about him. So then he could argue and go, this isn't consistent. This isn't consistent with everything you are. And usually when we hear about people pleading and arguing with God, it's people who don't know much about him. But this is a godly man going, this is inconsistent. Not long ago I had... Um, this couple come up, you're going to hear how horrible a person I am. I had this couple come up to me and say, hey, would, would you officiate our wedding? We're, it, everything's great. We, we met each other six months ago. We got engaged in three months. We want to get married in like yesterday. And so we would love for you to officiate our wedding. And I go, well, awesome. That sounds great. Have, have y'all fought yet? No, that's the beauty. We don't fight. And I went, well, go fight and then come back and I'll officiate your wedding. I got, I mean, there were Facebook posts, there were Twitter, like, pastor hates people, pastor wants people fighting, he doesn't like marriage. I mean, like, everything kind of came out in this. But the thing that I want is fighting shows I'm going to care. I care enough to bring it up. I care enough to address the things that are inconsistent with your nature. I had care enough to bring this to the forefront. I care enough about you and I have a deep enough relationship with you that we can hash this out. I love that. Some of you in this room need the freedom today to leave and honestly fight it out with God. You need the freedom to go, I'm close enough with you that this isn't consistent with your nature, and I'm angry about that. I'm frustrated with that. I don't like how you're responding to that because it doesn't seem to match anything else that you are. Habakkuk ends his talk by saying in 2.1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Here's one of the things I think we get disillusioned because of how we read in Scripture. We imagine that Habakkuk said, God, what are you doing? And God answered him immediately. And then he goes, well, I don't like that. And then God answered like, and so it's this, and for us, we're going, I've asked God, and it's been months, years before he's answered. Here's what I love about Habakkuk. He goes, I don't know when he's going to answer. So I'm going to position myself on the watchtower. I'm going to take a stance to see how God's going to answer this. I'm going to position myself in a way to hear from God. One of the reasons why we don't usually hear from God or we don't hear God answer prayers is because we don't position ourselves in ways to listen. We don't position our lives. We don't position um, our, our community around us. We don't position the way we listen to God in places that are a watchtower. And so one of the questions as we roll away from here that I want you to think through is, what is your watchtower? If you're going to plead with God, how are you setting yourself up to listen from God? How, how are you making yourself open and listening to who God is? I do this thing. It's a 30-day prayer calendar. I have people I pray for. Anyway, I text them, and I usually say, hey, how can I pray for you? And they text me back and tell me how they can pray for me, how I can pray for them each day. When the next month rolls around, I'll text them and say, hey, 
how can I pray for you this month? Last month I prayed for these things. Did God answer them? It's fascinating because most people, I've had immediately when I texted, I've had a phone call back. Somebody, I answered it. They were crying on the other end. Go, I didn't even realize God answered that. I prayed, I threw it out there, and then I moved on. I had no watchtower to see how God responds. I've had other people, usually how we pray, it's unanswerable. God, just show up in this place, if you will. And God, I think God's like, I, I think I'm there. I, think, I mean, we're kind of answered. I don't know, what do you want? Um, you know, I mean, it's these open-ended, unanswerable things. We often teach, when we teach prayer um, structures and guidelines and gatherings, we teach to pray in ways that you can tell if God answers or not. Pray in ways that have a way that you can tell this is when God answered. Be specific. When I read in this book, God's prayers are incredibly specific. And so the question is, what is your watchtower? Where do you listen? How do you just be quiet? I'm not one that just sits still and just be quiet for long periods of time. I'm like, the plane ride from Portland to here, it's just, it's like three hours. I just start going, uh, I mean, I just start like shaking. I, I just do not like being quiet and still and can't move. And I have to have a aisle seat so I can just walk just randomly. I'm the worst person in the world to fly because I go to the bathroom 14 times in a 45 minute flight just because, and it's not that I have to go. I just don't want to be sitting and I just don't sit still well. So when somebody goes, you know what? I just, I just position, I just let God speak and I'm quiet for hours at a time. I just look at that person and go, liar. Because it just, who can do that? Who naturally can do that? But there's rhythms of what your watchtower looks like. Mine looks like everywhere I drive, I pull up to the place, turn off my car, and for five minutes, I do nothing. I can do five minutes every time I go somewhere. What does your watchtower look like? What is your watchtower set like? If we want to see prayer that transforms our city, we have to have strong watchtowers to listen to what God says and how he responds. Some of the times the reason why we don't hear God is because we already have the answer that we want, and until we hear it, we don't listen. I already, I already know what I want from you. He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. It's like in the car, just last week, I'm up there, I'm with a group of three guys. I want to go eat a hamburger. So I'm like, hey, where do y'all want to go eat? And they're like, Mexican food. Mexican food in Portland, not happening. So let's keep on like, hey, wait, y'all haven't answered yet. Like, I, I haven't heard the hamburger joint that I want to go eat at. So I'm not listening. And so often, that's how we interact and respond with God. So God answers him. And I want to, I want to, push this into your mind. We have no idea the gap between verse 2-1 and 2-2. We have no idea if God was silent for minutes, hours, months, or years. No idea. So I just want to 
plead inside your head that you don't go, God just answered it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, just really quickly and we're moved on, no big deal. Because instead we have a God who may have been silent for long periods of time. And some of y'all, the reason why that's important is you can identify with that. You can go, I've been asking God to fix my job for years. I've been asking God to fix my alcoholic parents for years. He doesn't listen. And I love that there's a gap that we don't know about. Because if they put two weeks, if, if they put in parentheses, two weeks later, God spoke. And then we would all go, well, you got to wait two weeks. Like we would set up this rule. It's two weeks, then God answers. That's what the Bible says, so that's what happens. Instead of realizing what it looks like to interact and go back and forth with God, God answers in 2.20, and this is what I love about how God answers. He goes through this whole concept, this whole idea. Again, I'm going to let you read it, but at the big three things are in verse 4. He tells them, the just shall live by faith. He's like, you have to trust me. You got to trust me. And he doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, you got to trust me. The just shall live by faith. What he's pleading with you is, you have to trust me. You have to live in this relationship with me that I'm going to take care of. It. And then the rest is him talking about all the things that he's going to do and that he has done. Verse 14, the whole earth will one day be filled with God's glory. One day this will be better. One day this will be fixed. We plead with people to see the three phases of salvation. Because usually we sell them like, hey, come forward. Jesus is going to redeem your life. It's going to be great. You're going to take off. And oh, it's just going to be beautiful. The three phases of salvation is one, God died for your sins. He died for the penalty of sin. You no longer have to live with the penalty of your sin. The second one is eventually... And currently, God is destroying the power of sin in your life. How many of y'all today, because of walking with Jesus, actually sin less? Because he's destroying the power of sin in your life. Eventually, this is the third phase, he will remove you from the presence of sin. We no longer, like Habakkuk, have to look at violence, look at sin, look at ideas. And we are in that first phase going into the second, wrestling with that. And one day we will long for the third phase. That's what God is saying in Habakkuk 3.14. One day it'll all be better. One day it'll be fixed. Verse 20. God says, I'm still on my throne. I'm still on my throne throne. The reason why this was important is because Habakkuk thought God was unconcerned. But when he pressed in, he began to see some clarity. When he pressed in at who God is, he begins to see some clarity. You realize God loves this. He doesn't just chastise. He doesn't rip into Habakkuk. He doesn't go, hey, don't, I'm God. Back off. You don't ask me those questions. Look at who I am. He goes, come on, dude, let, let's have these talks. Let's have, you can argue with me. You can fight with me. You can dialogue with me. And he 
finishes it by saying all those three things, the righteous shall, you got to trust me. It's not the end. I'm going to fix it. And I'm still in control. I'm still in full, full, full control. So how does Habakkuk respond? Verse, chapter three is all of his response. But I want to first start in verse 16. Because some of y'all, me included, when God answers, we're still not satisfied. So God just said, I'm in complete control. Everything's going to be better in the end. You got to trust me. How many of y'all have had that response and you're still going, not satisfied with that? That doesn't answer my problem. My soul still is frustrated. And that's what I love in verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. I hear your response of what you're going to do, and I'm not okay with it. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. I cannot think of anything worse that I would rather hear from somebody going, okay, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. After here, we're going to all go eat. We're all going to Chili's and somebody doesn't go, I don't like that. They go, oh, I quiver at the sound. Oh, it just shakes. Inside, I feel gross. Like, that's not a huge, like, okay, we're on the same page. Um, At least we'll kind of like it. We can probably find something we like there. He's going, there is nothing about this that I'm on board with. There's absolutely nothing about this that I am in relationship with you in this way that I completely agree with this. So I love that he throws that out there and then we begin to see Habakkuk's response does these three things. Verse two. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Here's what he's saying. I see you're working. Now finish it. Don't you love that? Pleading with God, going, I see you're at work. Now do it and finish it. Finish it, God. Fix this and finish it. I love that pleading with God for him to step up and finish it. And then he goes on in verses 3 through 15. He talks about all the things that he's done in Israel's past. So Habakkuk has said, I see you're working. I hear what you're saying. Finish it. Bring unbelievable transformation to this area. Finish it. And then 3 through 15, he begins to talk about the past. He begins to talk about what all has happened. He begins to talk about how it's all fixing and what all is being redeemed and what all has changed and what all he's done in Israel's history. So for those in the room, including me, who've been pleading with God on something, and he seems to be telling you no, or he seems to be indifferent toward you, or he seems to be unconcerned about anything that's going on, and he seems to not intervene, I love this concept that one of the things that we, that God pleads with us to do is just remember what he has done and what has been good. In your current situation, you look at what has been good, what is good, and you rest in that. 
the very last thing, 16 through 19. I'm going to read this again because I think it's so important that we don't move past this and think Habakkuk prayed and it was him and God high-fived and they were so happy and he was just glad they talked. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. How many of you are in that situation? You want life transforming prayer and God seems to have answered it and you just have to sit back and go, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no Food, The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Here's what he says. I'm trembling, but that's okay. I'm trembling, but that's okay. At, at my bones, at the, at the core of my bones, I'm disgusted and frustrated. But that's okay because I'm going to trust you. Here's what, it, it's not completely based on just what's happening now. It's based on who you've been. It's based on what is beginning to happen. It's based on that I trust that in the end you're going to fix it all. Even if everything turns bad, I trust that you are who you say you are. Why is this so important? Why is this, for me, what I believe we need for world-changing, city-redeeming, life-transforming prayer? Because we need men and women who are willing to plead with God. To go after God's heart, to go after his soul, to go after who he is and go, God, I need you to change this. And God begins to answer and we begin to develop this tension between us and God praying and pleading for him to redeem our city. And we need Habakkuk's to rise up inside of Neartown Church and begin to plead with God to redeem the city and begin to massively care enough to argue with the heart of God. And go, it's time to, this doesn't look like heaven yet. Step up and make it that way. Our neighborhoods don't, our schools don't feel like heaven yet. Our marriages don't feel like heaven yet. Our families don't feel like heaven yet. Step up and do something. And we begin to plead with the heart of God. And we position ourselves on the watchtower. And we wait for God to begin to answer. Isn't that going to be a cool season? When we've pleaded with God's heart and then we begin to go, now we're going to let him answer. Now we're going to let him respond. Now we're going to let him dialogue with us about what he wants for this place. So what do we need for world changing, city transforming, neighborhood restoring, life giving prayer? Brutal honesty with God. Brutal honesty with God. We need a willingness to listen to the heart of God. A posture, a place, a rhythm to listen to the heart of God. 
And then ultimately, sometimes you're just going to have to release worship and trust. That's what I love about our time before the message when we all gather here and the music plays is that sometimes I don't want to sing. Sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I'm frustrated. I came in for a week and I just have to release and worship. You're still God. I don't know what's going on now, but I'm just going to worship. That's why the weekly gathering is so vitally important. Is because it aligns us. It brings us together to see the beauty. And sometimes when I'm angry and I'm not feeling it, I get to look at somebody else worshiping and I see them madly in love with God and I remember he is good. He's deeply good.